And I want to just begin by welcoming you here, and especially if you're new, really grateful you're here and, and uh, thankful that, that the Lord has brought you here. And uh, I, I say that because I, I want to maybe give a bit of context for what we're doing here this morning. Um, Good Friday is a day where we reflect upon the cross of Jesus Christ, and, and most of us are very familiar with the, the story of the cross the gospel story, but the reason that this story is so significant is because it's actually part of a much larger story. It's really the climax to a, to a greater story, a grander story that God has been telling throughout the pages of Scripture. And this morning, I simply want to back up to the beginning of the story And I want to walk us through the beginning and then run us through the middle, and I want us to land at the cross so that we can fix our gaze upon Jesus as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And what we're going to do this morning is a little bit unusual for us. If you've been coming to our church, you're a part of our church, what you know is that we we typically unpack a scripture or a passage of scripture, we walk through it together, but I, I want to take a bit of a different approach Um, There's going to be no points to this sermon. There's going to be no scriptures on the slide. Um, You're welcome to open your Bible, but it's a little dark in here um, for a good reason, so that we can kind of capture the sense of the darkness of that Good Friday. But I'm going to be working through a lot of different scriptures, touching upon a lot of different scriptures. And so what I want to encourage you to do is to maybe maximize the opportunity to simply sit back, to listen to the story as it unfolds, and allow your heart to be maybe stirred and impacted in a fresh way as you meditate upon the the grander story of God and how the story of the gospel fits in and is woven throughout in such a beautiful and profound and powerful way. Soak in this story. Let it stir your heart for Jesus. We call this this day Good Friday, but to understand why it is is so good, we need to back up to when the story began and when it was declared to be all good. Genesis 1 verse 1 tells us that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The first chapter of the Bible spells out the magnificent power of God to create all things out of nothing. And it tells us that He created everything good. And and we can skip right past the first verse of the Bible, but this, this verse should give us cause to pause and to reflect because this is the foundation for everything. And if this single verse is true, it changes everything for you and me. Because it means that that this world didn't happen by accident. It means that you are not an accident. It means that God created everything on purpose and with a purpose. When people contemplate that question, why did God create all of this? Some, some people get to the wrong conclusion. They, they think maybe, maybe that God, this eternal being, was, was sitting off in heaven someplace, and He was simply bored, twiddling His thumbs like He had nothing to do. 
Or, or maybe God was lonely. Maybe that's why God created us. He was lonely, and He just needed somebody around, or, or that God needed something to be perfectly fulfilled or satisfied in His existence, and all of that is trash. It is not true. God needs nothing from anyone. God is perfectly fulfilled within Himself. He, exists, he has existed for all eternity in perfect unity and fellowship and love within Himself, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So why? Why did God create all of this? The simple answer is that God created all of this and all of us out of an overflow of who He is. You see, what love naturally wants to do is share itself with others. And the best thing God can do is to let us experience Him, to know Him, to love Him, to enjoy His glory. That's why He made us. In fact, it tells us in Genesis 1, 27, that God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. God blessed His creation. He told Him to be fruitful and multiply and take dominion over the earth. You see, it's important that you understand what He's saying here. What does it mean that, that God created humanity in His own image and likeness? Well, it means this, that God created us with this sense of kingship. That's what image means. And the sense of sonship, that's what likeness means. God created us, in other words, to reflect Him, that's kingship. But God created us to know Him in an intimate, personal relationship, that is sonship. The very purpose of your existence is to live in intimate and eternal fellowship and communion with God. God never created us to experience some kind of a distant, far-off relationship or knowledge of Him. In the early chapters of the Bible, God draws so near and is so intimate with, with His creation and with human beings, with Adam and Eve, and in chapter 2, Verses 7 and 8, it says this, And the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. He forms humanity out of dust. It reminds us, doesn't it, that, that apart from God and his life-giving power, we are nothing but dust. God gave life, and He placed humanity. It tells us in the Garden of Eden, it says, the Lord God planted in a garden in Eden, in the east, and there He put the man whom He had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the middle of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God places man, the pinnacle of His creation, in this garden called Eden. Eden itself, the very word, means delight. And you see, God took great delight in placing his, his sons and daughters in this beautiful garden. It was a delight to His own heart to see His children enjoying this beautiful garden. But it's also a delight to humanity who lives in this garden. 
Everything was pleasant to their sight. I mean, every time they turned around, they saw the beauty and the majesty of this garden. I mean, the colors were so vibrant. The air was so pure. Every landscape was magnificent. And every time they turned around, they said, this is so good. It is so good. And every bite of fruit they tasted from a tree was as delicious as the one before. The flavors exploding in their mouths, and they would declare, this is good. This is so good. God, you are so good. And in verses 16 and 17, it tells us that the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Most of us read that and we go right to the command. Don't do this. Don't do this. But I want you to notice the freedom that exists in this garden. It's all yours. Everything has been created for you. Everything has been created for you to enjoy and delight in. You can take from any tree but this one. That's the only one. Everything else is good for you. Everything else is for you. It's yours. But notice that the relationship of blessing comes with necessary boundaries. Enjoyment in God's good world must be both guarded and guided by God's truth. You see, God knows what's good for us. God God in himself is good, and so he sets the standard for what is good. And God looks at his human beings, his sons and daughters, and he says, Listen, I know what's good for you. Trust me. Believe me. And if you don't, here's what will happen. The day that you disobey you will surely die. In the Hebrew, it's a fascinating translation. In the Hebrew, it actually reads like this. It reads, dying, you shall surely die. It's like a father who says to his children, bad, bad. Dead, dead. But you can see, listen, the weightiness to what God is communicating to humanity. Listen, to to disobey me is to bring about death and destruction. And fascinatingly, in verse 25 of chapter 2, it says this, and the man and women who lived in this garden, listen to this, it says that they were both naked and were not ashamed. I mean, just imagine that for a moment. No fear, no insecurities, no abuse, no objectification, no jealousy, no wounds, a world that is perfectly good with no haunting memories, no regret, no hard hearts, no sin, no shame. They knew nothing but love, joy, freedom, and the presence of God. And that is the world that we were created to live in. And that is why this world hurts so deeply. That is why our world is filled with so much tragedy, with so much pain. That is why our world is filled with so much disappointment, so many wounds, brokenness, 
heartache. That's why we're so confused and torn apart. That's why there's so much despair and destruction, because we were created to live in a perfectly good world with a perfectly good God. But this story goes from very good to very bad very quickly. And it only takes two chapters because the moment we get into chapter 3, we're introduced to a new character in the story. Chapter 3 begins by declaring that the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The serpent, Satan, tempts Eve tempts Eve to eat from the one tree that she was not allowed to eat from. She takes and and she eats and she gives some to her husband who also was standing nearby and watched the whole thing unfold, and he takes and he eats. Satan, the the liar, the deceiver, the Bible calls him the adversary. He he tempts Eve with this, this offer of real freedom, true joy, true happiness and satisfaction. And he says, listen, listen, has God really said, really, really, God just doesn't want you to enjoy life. He doesn't want you to experience true life. There's no consequences for your sin. Death? You've never seen death before? How can you be sure that this even exists? Take a bite. Don't listen to God. Nothing will happen. This is the age-old lie of Satan. It never changes. From age to age, it's the exact same. Don't trust God. He's holding out on you. He cannot be believed. And so they didn't. They didn't trust God. They, They went their own way, and they rejected the king and creator of the universe. And in the moment they took from the fruit of the tree, they died. They didn't die physically right away, although that would happen, but they died a deeper spiritual death that is much greater and changes absolutely everything in the fabric of the universe. Sin comes in, corrupting all of creation. It kills everything, bringing about certain death. And in chapter 3, verse 7, it says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. In a moment, their innocence is gone. Their eyes are open. They have this new understanding of themselves that is, is all twisted up and distorted. It's like looking at themselves in a carnival mirror. They, they felt things that they'd never felt before. Guilt and shame and fear and condemnation and pain and regret. So what did they do? Did you notice what they did? They patched themselves up with fig leaves. This is man's first attempt at redemption. First attempt to cover their sin. 
I have to do something to fill this hole in my heart. I have to do something to try to erase this shame and this guilt. And listen, we are just the same as them. Our world is no different. We all have felt this gaping hole in our hearts, this absence, this emptiness that we replace with all kinds of things other than God, with sex, with substances, with stuff. We just fill it up, hoping it would fill it up, but we remain empty and broken and longing and lacking. Sin has ravaged us. And what do they do? Verse 8, one of the saddest moments in this story, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. God calls out, this is so sad, isn't it? God calls out to them in this next passage, but, but just notice this. They used to walk with God in the garden. How about that for morning devotions? But no more. Now they hide from Him out of fear, and He calls out to them in verse 9, and here's the first question asked by God in the Bible. Where are you? Does God, does God not know? Does God like lose them or something? Is God confused about where they actually are? Like God is actually trying to look behind the bushes and figure out where, where, where Adam and Eve have gone to? No, that's not what's, what's going on. Why is God asking this question? What is God looking for from Adam and Eve as he asks this question? He wants confession. He wants acknowledgement of the wrongdoing. He wants repentance. He wants them to come out before Him and say, we did it. We, we sinned. We violated Your commands. We broke Your law. We rebelled against You. We did it. We didn't believe You. We didn't trust You. And we messed everything up. But instead, look what they do. They hide themselves. Because that's what sinners do, don't they? We hide. We hide behind all kinds of displays of self-righteousness. We hide behind all kinds of excuses. We try to justify ourselves. We do whatever we need to do to hide because to walk in the light is to be exposed for what we truly are, sinners in need of grace. We try to deceive ourselves and everyone around us, but God cannot be deceived Verse 11 tells us, he finds them and he says, who told you? They say, they say in verse 10, he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And classic Adam, this woman that you gave me, she made me do it. But do you hear this? He's not just blaming the women. Who's he blaming? God. God, this is your fault. I didn't ask for this woman. See, sin messes up our relationships, doesn't it? It messes up our relationship with ourself. It messes up our relationship with others. But more importantly, it messes up our relationship with God. Like Adam, we too blame others. 
We're quick to blame our situations, our circumstances, other people. And yes, they may influence us, but listen, all along it was us. It was us. It was sin in us that caused us to rebel against God. Sin has killed these perfect, good relationships. There was so much freedom and joy and love, but now, now there's bitterness and anger and resentment. Listen, sin always pretends to be your friend, but it's only getting close so it can kill you. We're just like Adam and Eve. We deserve what they deserve. We deserve to be cast away from God's presence for all eternity. We deserve to suffer in hell and to pay for our sins. But instead of crushing them, He promises that He would crush another. Instead of judging them, He promises that He would judge another. He promises to pour out His wrath on another. And in chapter 3, verses 14 through 19, He lays out these curses as a result of sin, a threefold curse. On the serpent, He he gives this curse that He will remain slithering on His belly, licking the dust of the ground. To the woman, He says, there will now be enmity between your offspring and the offspring of the serpent. And to the man... He says, listen, the ground is going to be hard to work. By the sweat of your brow, there's going to be thorns and thistles now that creep up from the earth. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. And there's going to be tension between your relationship now with your wife. And everything is all messed up. It's all broken. And then you will experience physical death. This is the reason for funerals to remind you that this world is cursed. Every time you see a funeral, every time you hear about another death on the news, you should be reminded this world is broken, this world is cursed. Sin has caused destruction and alienation from God. We are born sinners and we will die because of sin. But the best news in this story is that God doesn't just curse them. Just leave them to this death. Instead, He gives them a promise of of one who would come and become a curse for them, one who will guide the rest of history. This promise will now guide the entirety of the Scriptures. They will now begin to look for one, one that from this point on would be the only hope for this broken world. And in Genesis 3.15, we get the glimpse of the gospel that we long for. He says this to Eve, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Satan will have offspring, but Eve too will have offspring. And there will be this this war, this massive cosmic war against the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, but one of her offspring will do something that will change everything. He will crush your head and strike your heel, or you will strike his heel. He, this one, is a singular man who is promised. He who would be born of a woman, he will come and he will crush this serpent, and in the process he would be wounded, a Savior and a Deliverer who will stand up to the enemy, who will not believe his lies but will overcome. And God gives them a sign here at the end of of chapter 3. He clothes them with the skins of an animal. Think about what that means for a moment. That means that an innocent animal must die so that their shame can be truly covered. And notice who does this. God does it. 
He strips off their self-righteous fig leaves, and He covers them with the skins of an innocent, innocent one whose blood was shed on their behalf. And now this picture reminds them to look for this promised one from this day forth. There is going to be one who comes who will cover all of your sin and shame. They're driven out from the garden, and God posts a cherubim, an angel with a flaming sword to guard the entrance back into the garden of God's presence. They're driven out into the darkness, into exile, where we are now. And again, the questions now begin to come, who will the seed of the woman be? Who will take away our fig leaves and give us purity? Who will be struck like the animal and take our place? Who will get us back to the Garden of Eden where we can see God face to face? Who will do this? What will His name be? How will He do this? And the whole Old Testament can be summed up with one word, anticipation. Someone's coming. Someone's coming. And the rest of the Old Testament unfolds. Listen, promise after promise, pattern after pattern, picture after picture to give us greater insight and reminders that someone is coming who alone can fix this broken world and fix our broken souls. And right away we see the names of the genealogies in the book of Genesis reminding us, yes, that people continue to live by the grace of God, but they die. They keep dying, 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 and reminding us that these ones who have come before, they're not the one. And we get to Noah. And the question is asked, will this be the one to give us rest? And he does, but not in an ultimate sense. He's a picture and a pattern of what's to come. In Genesis 6 through 9, the world is is raging against God and their sin, and so Noah builds his ark. God floods the earth in judgment, destroying everyone and everything except for those who by faith would enter the ark. The waters of judgment would pass over them, and they would be brought through the judgment into a new world. It's a pattern, it's a picture of what's to come. Humanity again rebels against God. They team up and they build a tower and God laughs at them. And in Genesis 11, He scatters them because of their desire to make a name for themselves. And the wave of darkness goes out. Has God forgotten His promise? No. And in Genesis 12, God plucks this man, this pagan, idolatrous man, out from the darkness, a man named Abram, and He makes to him a promise, a covenant. And He tells him that one is going to be born, the seed of Abraham, through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. The nation of Israel is birthed from him, his son Jacob, whose name is then changed to Israel. And Israel, the nation, is to be a light to the nations, to the world, to show them who God is and what God wanted for them. And he has 12 sons. One of them is named Judah, and in Genesis 49, it tells us that God promised that this this one from the line of Judah would be a king whose scepter would never depart. And the promise expands and it continues to unfold. And from there, Israel is enslaved in Egypt. 
But God does not allow them to perish. Instead, he raises up a man named Moses to deliver them, to set them free. He brings plagues upon Pharaoh and the nation of Egypt. And you remember that final plague, that last plague, the angel of death passes through, and it's that Passover celebration that is established in that moment. The people of God are told to take a young lamb, an innocent, spotless lamb, and to slay that lamb and take its blood and put it over the doorposts of your house. That whoever would trust in the blood of the lamb, death would pass over them. It's a picture. And then at Sinai, God gives His people the law to let them know who He is and how to, to please Him. And in that law, He gives them a sacrificial system because He knew that they could never keep the law. They could never be perfectly holy. They would always fall back into sin. And because of that, He made provision animals that would shed blood for them. And He gives them the tabernacle and later the temple where His presence is localized and isolated and very few can even get close to it, but it's there, it's there, it's a glimpse, it's a picture of what, what was meant to be and what is to come. And then Joshua comes along, the Old Testament name for Jesus, and he leads the people into the promised land, and he, he helps to conquer all of God's enemies, take the land for God's people, purging it of all unrighteousness. It's a picture. It's a pattern. In the days of Judges, the people were up and down. They did what was right in their own eyes, and the prophet Samuel comes along, and, and, and the people declare to Samuel, we want a king like all the other nations. We want to be more like them. We want what they have. And so God says, fine, you want a king like all the other nations? I'll give you one. He's going to be tall, dark, and handsome, and he's going to get half a good chapter in the Bible. Half a good chapter, then it's all bad for him. And God says, I'm going to get a man after my own heart, or instead of a man who's after his own heart. And God says, I'm done with you, Saul. I'm raising up a man after my own heart. And he raises up David. And God makes David a promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7, a covenant telling him that, that he's going to give him offspring. And one in particular, he says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. You see, the promise is continuing to unfold from the, the woman to Abraham, from the Lion of Judah to King David. And after David dies, the nation goes through a number of kings. Few, few if any, are, are really good. They're, they're mostly bad. It's one bad king after another bad king, and it's supposed to, listen, stir in the people's hearts, give us a good king. Give us a king like David. Give us a king who loves your law. Give us a king who is righteous. Give us a king who will establish justice on this earth. Where is this king? And he gives them the prophets who speak to these kings and to the nation of Israel, and he tells them, they tell them to repent, for there is one who's coming. And the prophet Micah, in Micah chapter 5, says that this one will be born in the town of Bethlehem, that the name Bethlehem means breadbasket. 
And Isaiah, the prophet, in chapter 7 says he would be born of a virgin. And then chapter 53, he says, but this, this one who would be born, this one would be a suffering servant. He would be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, promise after promise, in pattern after pattern, in picture after picture, so that the people of God would keep crying out, would keep looking for the one. Who is this Savior? Who is the one born of the woman, born of Abraham, from the tribe of Judah, the king of David's line, who is the sacrificial lamb of the Passover. And then John the Baptist, in John chapter 1, verse 29, looks and sees Jesus and says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And in the fullness of time, God kept every single one of His promises He brought Jesus, born in Bethlehem, the bread of life, born into the bread basket, the light of the world. And as you move into the New Testament, Matthew, he he begins with a genealogy, another long list of names. Why? Because he wants you to see that this is the son of Abraham and the son of David. God has fulfilled His promise. Here He is. But He's not just the son of man. John's gospel in John 1.14 says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It is the Son of Man and is the Son of God. It is God Himself who comes down and does what Adam and Eve or us could never do. He perfectly obeys the Father, perfectly trusting in Him. He comes and He proclaims the gospel of the kingdom. He says, trust me and I will forgive your sins. And we see the blind have sight, deaf people hear, lame people walk, dead people rise, and He did all that God promised that He would do. There was no one else. It was always Him. He alone could do this. But rather than embrace Him as King, Those who came, he came to save, declared, We have no king but Caesar. They mocked him, they spat on him, they beat him, they tore out his beard, and then they nailed him to a cross. And at that moment, all of history came into focus. For long ago, in a garden, humanity had forsaken Him, their God, to taste of a tree. And now they forsake Him again by nailing Him to a tree. We don't want you to rule over us. We don't want you to be our king. And again, a curse falls but this time not on us. It falls on Jesus, that He who knew no sin became sin. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, says the law. He was cursed for us. The first man was once naked and ashamed, and on that cross, Jesus was stripped naked and took our shame. On that cross, He took the wrath that we rebellious sinners deserved. And do you remember what came up from the ground when God cursed the ground? Thorns, thistles. Do you remember what Jesus wore on His head 
when he was crucified. Crown of thorns. That's our king. No, no crown of gold or jewels. His glory was to wear our curse and our shame on His head. His glory was to receive the punishment that we deserved. And He hung on that cross, and after, after He had suffered, He cried out, It is finished. God's wrath poured out in full, down to the last drag. No more He drank every last drop of God's wrath. Every promise completely fulfilled in Him, and now through His death, He gives a new covenant where there will be no more offerings for sin, no more temple sacrifices, no more lambs. The author of Hebrews in chapter 8 and in chapter 10, quoting from Jeremiah 31, says that this is the covenant I will make with them, says the Lord, that I will remember their sins no more. And under this new covenant, God promises to forgive all of our sins. All sins are forgiven for those who trust in Christ. He will clothe you instead with His righteousness. He'll strip away all of our attempts to clothe ourselves with the fig leaves of our self-righteousness, and He will robe us with His own perfect life. I will remember your sins no more. Listen, no matter where you've been or what you've done, no matter how deep or dark, the blood of Jesus washes you clean if you trust in Him. And after he died, the Scriptures say that the curtain in the temple was torn in two. It was there to keep sinful people from a holy God. In Exodus 32, do you want to know what, what was embroidered on the temple curtain? Cherubim. You remember what protected the door of the Garden of Eden? Cherubim guarding the door so that no one could enter into the presence of God. And here, here in this moment, God says, I am fixing it all. Rebels can be made right, and they can come to me if they are willing to come through me. So on Good Friday, we are reminded about what God has done for us, that He alone is the one, that He alone could take our place, that He alone is the suffering servant promised in Isaiah that He alone is the Davidic King, He alone is the fulfillment of the sacrificial system, that He alone is the Passover Lamb, He alone is the seed of Abraham, the one who crushed the head of the serpent, who removes our guilt and shame, who takes the curse of sin, who brings us back into the presence of God, and who will one day, through the power of the cross, bring the new heaven and new earth where all things will finally be good again. This is why it's Good Friday.